I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with privacy attorney Eliana Peters of the law firm Polsonelli. We will be discussing some of the complicated privacy and security issues involving health data warehousing and data sharing. So, Eliana, for starters, what are some of the latest trends that you're seeing when it comes to health data warehousing and data sharing agreements? What's driving these trends and any examples? So I think a lot of healthcare entities of different types. So, you know, people immediately think of healthcare providers and large health systems. And I think certainly those are examples of healthcare entities that are undertaking large data projects. But these types of entities that are undertaking large data projects really range amongst all of the entities in our health data ecosystem. So those could be healthcare providers, like we said, large health systems. They could also be health plans, health insurance companies. And finally, they could be business associates or vendors that work with all different types of healthcare entities, including healthcare providers and health plans. They're all undertaking these large data projects, data lake, data warehousing projects. I'm I'm not a huge fan of those terms because they, they tend to have some connotations that aren't necessarily the best, but They do sort of help illustrate the issue, but these are really large data projects for several different reasons, and and, and in many cases, very good reasons. So things like utilization review. So a lot of health systems or health plans are putting large groups of data together for different patients over time or different beneficiaries over time to try and identify trends for better or for worse in that data. So really trying to understand better how we can make improvements to the care that we're providing to individual patients over time. Are there interventions that we should be undertaking earlier to reduce costs? Are there different techniques we can use to track patients to improve their overall care and to reduce costs? So all of these are really important questions. The other types of projects that I'm seeing quite a bit of is, of course, research-related projects. And so these types of projects are, as you would imagine, sort of both identifying appropriate populations of patients for certain types of research, and that may be cancer, it may be epilepsy, it could be other types of underlying conditions as complicated as rare diseases or as simple as allergies in quotation marks, because these things are never simple. But there are research projects ongoing at many different healthcare providers that are working with institutional review boards or different study protocols to make sure that they, again, identify the right patients for research for different purposes and ensuring that research takes place in a way that's approved by, for example, an institutional review board. So, you know, just putting all of these large amounts of data together isn't necessarily problematic because obviously we have these good intentions as we're doing them. Again, important things like utilization review or research, but they have in a lot of ways either unintended consequences or unintended risks. So with that said, what are some of the unintended consequences and risks? And the data 
what kind of data? Is it coming, for instance, from electronic health records? Is it coming from claims data? I guess it depends on what the project is. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And the short answer, it can be any and all of those sources of data. So, for example, some clients may be looking at information from their certified EHR systems, their electronic health record systems. These are systems that are certified by the Department of Health and Human Services for purposes of certain functionality and to ensure that the healthcare providers that are providing services using those technologies um, can submit appropriate claims to insurance, for example. But they could also be claims-related information, payment-related information. So on the health plan side, health plans have a lot of data about their uh, beneficiaries, about the services they're utilizing, about the different doctors they're seeing for different purposes, about the tests they're getting. And similarly, healthcare providers have a lot of that same claims data because, of course, they submit information for purposes of payment to those health plans or health insurance companies. So it can be a a wide range of data from de-identified or anonymized data, which is arguably very few identifiers related to individuals if it's de-identified by an expert or, or really no identifiers related to an individual. Or it could be identifiable data that is compiled, again, for operations purposes like utilization review or for research um, in conjunction with an approved protocol or for uh, purposes of identifying the right folks for research. So these data come from a variety of sources. There are some important reminders because many of the payer contracts, so many of the health insurance companies put into the contracts that they have with healthcare providers restrictions on how claims data associated with the beneficiaries of their plans can be used. So in some cases, they don't. So some health insurance companies are perfectly comfortable with healthcare providers putting together data to look at utilization review, for example, to reduce costs to their beneficiaries. But some payers do not permit those. And so healthcare providers really should remember that when they're making these types of decisions to compile or aggregate large amounts of data that includes claims information for certain beneficiaries, they want to be sure to check their contracts with those payers. The CMS data use agreement, for example, the data use agreement that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services require prohibits this type of data aggregation for CMS beneficiaries. So that's just one example of a public document that um, has these types of restrictions in them. So part of this discussion that we're having about putting these data sets together for whatever purpose includes what are the contractual requirements related to that data. So that's sort of one of the first questions we ask in terms of risk. If we are putting together data, what do our contracts require? Can we comply with those contracts or those legal requirements that are included in those contracts? What does that look like? Similarly, a lot of those contracts and our legal obligations independently under, for example, the HIPAA rules and or state laws related to data privacy and security have a lot of requirements about how we have to keep that data private and secure. So if we are putting together sort of large aggregated data sets, that can be a very attractive target for threat actors, for example. 
So as you can imagine, there are a lot of bad guys out there who look for large data sets because if they can steal large data sets, perhaps they can make money off of those data sets or they can create a situation where they're ransoming the entity that holds that large data set to try and keep it from being used for nefarious purposes. So anytime we put together very large data sets, we run the risk of becoming an attractive target for threat actors. And so we have to be sure that we take very seriously both our contractual and independent legal obligations to protect that data from a a privacy standpoint, but also from a data security standpoint. And of course, that we anticipate what the risks are to any particular data set that we're putting together, depending on where we store it, who has access to it, the uses of that data in terms of interactions with other systems or entities um, to make sure that we have the appropriate security controls in place on those data sets, that aggregated data, that data lake or data warehouse. And finally, there's a lot that's happening with de-identification or anonymization of this data. So when we put these data together in large aggregated data sets, Some of the uses that we may be anticipating, including with our vendors, so if our vendors are helping us with these projects, we may be anticipating providing the identified data or anonymized data for different purposes as well. And there are significant legal risks with that process, particularly depending on how the resulting de-identified data set is going to be used and for what purposes. In addition, there's data ownership issues related to the downstream uses of all of this data. So those are just some of the high points that we look at when we're looking at the complications, the challenges, and the legal risk associated with these types of projects. So Ileana, with that said, what are some of the top security and privacy issues that come up with data warehousing and data sharing involving de-identified health data versus identifiable health data. And, you know, often we hear that even though players claim that the data is de-identified, if you have enough data points, you could probably figure out perhaps somebody's identity with a rare disease or, you know, what are some of the issues there that need to be addressed from a privacy and security perspective? Absolutely. That is a great point, Marianne. And that is really one of the major risks that we're seeing. So there's a couple. And as I mentioned, just sort of starting backwards, is data ownership. If if a healthcare provider or a health plan, a health insurance company is working with a third-party provider, a vendor of some kind, to help them compile this data, that is, put it together, aggregate it, and then de-identify it or anonymize it, this is largely how a lot of these projects are being done these days. And again, that is permitted under the law, so we can absolutely hire a vendor to to help us with this important work. But we need to ensure not only that the vendor also complies with the same contractual requirements that we have, um, but also that we have the appropriate contracts in place with our vendor to protect our data when we hand it to them. So it's likely being handed over in an identifiable form in some form or fashion. And again, if we're HIPAA covered, we need to make sure we have the appropriate business associate agreements But we may also want to consider data licensing and data ownership issues because once our vendor 
gets that data, we have significantly less control over it. And so it's really important to understand that while there are some fantastic vendors out there doing this work, there are some that aren't as good. And maybe contemplating uses or disclosures of our including de-identified data in ways that we don't anticipate. For example, to monetize the data. So once the data is anonymized or de-identified, for example, in conjunction with the HIPAA rules, arguably it's not protected by those HIPAA rules anymore and it can be sold. So we do wanna make sure that we understand that we have a very good idea of the uses and disclosures that our vendors contemplate in regard to the work that they're doing for us to create de-identified data and what that looks like. Because obviously to your point, if data is de-identified and then sold, we have no control over what happens to it after that point. And it is our responsibility as the HIPAA-covered entity, that is the health plan or the healthcare provider, to ensure that we have no indications that that data can be re-identified by anyone once that data is disclosed. So if our business associate vendor sells our data, whether we're aware of it or not, and it is re-identified, arguably we as the covered entity, not our business associate vendor, is liable for the disclosures of identifiable patient information that may result from those downstream disclosures. So obviously that creates a lot of liability for the healthcare providers and the health plans that may be doing this de-identification work that they sincerely believe that the information is no longer identifiable. But to your point, sometimes that data becomes re-identified because of other available data sets that may not have been known at the time of the de-identification or they're being used by other entities that may have comparable data or whatever the situation may be. And ultimately, we are liable. We, the HIPAA-covered entity, the data owner, the original data owner, are liable for that re-identification of data. So we want to make sure that whenever we engage in these projects, we have control over the de-identification process. That is, we understand how the de-identification is taking place, whether that's through, quote unquote, the safe harbor analysis under the HIPAA privacy rule, or whether that's through an expert analysis. And we approve of the expert and we understand the opinion and we work with the expert to anticipate any future uses of that data that could result in re-identification. And that we're comfortable, again, with what the vendor anticipates doing with that de-identified data, such that we are aware of any future risks. So, Ileana, finally, you, you mentioned about some of the steps there, making sure that you're confident in the de-identification of the data, you know, if it's done by a vendor. Any other top privacy or security tip that these companies that, for instance, a covered entity sharing patient data with one of these companies for data mining or you know, improved health outcome sort of analysis, any other top advice in terms of steps they should take to sort of protect that data, their patients and themselves once this data is handed over? Absolutely. Yes, Miriam, thank you for the question. Because, you know, the HIPAA privacy and security uh, breach notification rules, the HIPAA rules don't require that we audit our vendors. They require that we put a business associate agreement in place and that we engage in conversations with the business associate about correcting any indications of noncompliance when they become known to us. 
but they don't require, the HIPAA rules don't require affirmative audits. That said, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting audits because audits can be very resource intensive for everyone. That said, I do think it's incredibly important that when we engage with these vendors that we have a really good idea of what their data security practices look like. And there are a lot of different ways clients can do that. Some clients do questionnaires. Some clients have addenda to their contracts or their business associate agreements that contain very specific controls requirements for the vendors that they're using. Any and all of those different techniques will work. But really the point is we want to ensure that when we hand over this very valuable data to third-party vendors, we have some assurance that they have adequate controls in place to protect that data, not only from insider threat attacks, their own people potentially doing something nefarious with our data, but also to protect it against those threat actors that are outside the organization. Um, We also want to make sure that we have robust contractual provisions that provide for notification in the case of potential breach or a known breach. And entities may want to consider indemnification and insurance as part of those conversations as well. So in other words, if we're going to hand over really lucrative, really sensitive data to a third-party vendor to do these important aggregation and de-identification projects, we want to make sure that the right security controls are in place such that our data, the data owner's data, is protected, that our patients are protected, and that we have recourse if something does go wrong. Well, thank you very much, Ileana. I've been speaking to Ileana Peters. I'm Marianne Kobasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for joining us.